Okay, so I am going to just spend a few minutes giving you a little of my background so you understand where I'm coming from. But first of all, how many of you are involved with a school? Either, okay, that's everybody. I know there's a few homeschoolers here, but this is definitely geared more for schools, although I think homeschoolers could learn from it as well. But um, I, I just want to help you to see I'm one of you. Um, I, I am blessed to have a family with a rich background in self-supporting work. Um, many of my relatives went to Madison. My grandfather was a treasurer at Madison. My father went to high school at Madison. Um, in fact, a story I love is my grandma's brother, so I guess that's my great uncle, is that right? Um, the story is that he grew a field of watermelons out in Chico, California, with the goal of raising enough money to go to Madison. And he sold enough watermelons to pay for his trip across country, and he arrived at Madison with $5 in his pocket or something. They didn't know he was coming. He knocked on the door, basically, and said, I'm here to get an education. And they took him in. That was the beauty of Madison. You didn't have to have money. If you were willing to work, they'd take you in. And he went through Madison and went on to start a number of self-supporting institutions. Um, another one of his brothers, <clears throat> Ralph Martin, also went to Madison and went on to start self-supporting institutions. So I have a very deep interest and background in self-supporting work. I went to Little Creek Academy, which is no more, but at the time it was uh, a wonderful place to go, a self-supporting school, a, a satellite, a, a daughter institution of Madison, and it changed my life. I sometimes wonder where I would be if it wasn't for my four years at Little Creek, and I, I know the Lord used it in my life. Went on to Southern, got a degree in education, and my wife and I were privileged after graduation from Southern to go to Kenya as a teacher at Maxwell Adventist Academy for six years. It was a school um, set up for missionaries' children, missionaries of our children of the missionaries from all over Africa. So that was a unique and um, growing experience, um, working in a boarding academy setting for six years. Came back, got a master's in education from Andrews, and then taught in in uh, one-room elementary school for two years. And then, it's too long a story to tell now, but we felt the Lord was calling me to come home, to be more home-based, and so I quit my job, and the Lord led us into agriculture. That's the short version. And we've been farming for the last 20 years at uh, Bountiful Blessings Farm, just about three and a half hours from here um, in Middle Tennessee. So I 
I feel like I'm an educator at heart. Um, and so I'm going to say some things that I hope are going to challenge you, but I don't want you in any way to think that I'm looking down or condemning or anything like that because I'm one of you. Um, and we need to be challenged, right? Challenge brings growth. So, so I want to challenge you challenge me so again for those who came in a little later we we've got two parts this afternoon the first one is entitled as you see relearning our abcs the challenges and solutions of implementing agriculture in our schools and and again i'm i'm sharing my observations and what i think are solutions i'm not in any way claiming that I have all the solutions to the challenges. There are, there are big challenges. Um, and then the second part is going to be agriculture in our schools, making it work, where I'm going to try to get a little more down to earth, show you some methods, some techniques, some tools that I believe can make any of your schools help them have a successful agriculture program. So that's the second part. And then we're going to end with Alyssa from Heritage Academy sharing. I, I had the privilege of working with them this year to try to implement some of these ideas at Heritage. And, um, you know, it, it has had a few bumps in the road, but overall I feel positive about the first year's experience there. So we'll have a, a real-life case study of what can be done. So that's the plan for the afternoon. Hopefully we can end in time for some questions. I like for audio verses sake to save questions as much as possible to the end because it really messes up the recording otherwise. But that's our plan. So let's jump in. Relearning our ABCs, challenges and solutions. This is a, how many of you know this quote? If you don't, you should. Working the soil, this is from sixth volume of the testimonies, page 179. Working the soil is one of the best kinds of employment. Calling the muscles into action and resting the mind. Study in agricultural lines should be the A, B, and C of the education given in our schools. This is a very important work that should be entered upon. Is that what it says? No, it says this is the very first work that should be entered upon. So I want to have a little bit of discussion here. What does that mean to you? What does that say to you? It should be a pri it should be the priority. It doesn't necessarily say priority, but it, it does say it is one of the first things, whether it's first in priority or first in attack or first in, in um, 
what the students do every day, that doesn't really define. Okay. Yeah, uh, there, there's a lot that it doesn't say. I mean, in other words, you could read into it from, from different angles. But um, if something is the A, B, and C, what, what does that get across to you? Beginning, foundational. It's foundational to education. So I feel like we can at least take that much from it. Um, now, it's not the A to Z. We need to be clear on that. You know, there's more to true education than agriculture, right? So we're not trying to say agriculture is the solution. But as I read it, it's supposed to be foundational to our education. Um, again, I, I want to be sensitive because I know that there are, there are huge challenges to implementing this. And, and so that's what we're going to look about out here. But, well, I'll just ask you and you can, you can uh, answer in your own mind. Is that how your school is? Is, is agriculture the A, B, and C of the education at your school? Okay, so I'm going to look at 15, reason, 15 challenges to agriculture in our institutions. And this first one, notice there's a couple and ors. I'm suggesting we really don't believe the inspired council and or we are making decisions based on circumstances and not principle, and or we don't know how to implement the council. Now, I don't believe any of you here fit into the first category, be, at least I hope not, because, you know, I think this is pretty much all self-supporting schools, right? And I know you wouldn't be into it you wouldn't be there if you didn't believe in this inspired council. So I really don't think it's the first one. And I hope it's not the second one, although I do know how life can start running you instead of you running life. Um, but I hope we're not making decisions based on circumstances and not principle because that never really brings satisfaction. It never brings fulfillment. So I'm suspecting that for all of you, it's probably more the third one that you just haven't been able to wrap your mind around how to implement it. How do we take this council that says agriculture should be um, foundational, the A, B, and C of our education, and how do we implement it? And if that's the case, I hope that I can bring some encouragement today because I do feel like there's some fairly simple answers. Um, I don't know, simple is probably too simple a term. Very few simple things in life. But there are some, I mean, there, yeah, we'll just keep going. 
Second challenge, parents and students don't value an agricultural education. Um, you know, we, of course, ran into this maybe even more so in, in um, Africa. Some cultures, and, and I, it's the same here in the States, but I think it's maybe more obvious in other cultures. The whole mentality is we want our kids to get educated so they don't have to wield a shovel, right? We want them to have a respectable job something where people will look up to them. Um, and, you know, it's, it's probably a little more subtle here, but the bottom line is, you know, if a parent says, well, my child is a farmer, that's not quite the same as saying, well, my child is a doctor or my child is a pastor. There is something about... Um, manual labor that is viewed as degrading in our society and and it's killing us literally <laughs> um you know we've got all the obesity epidemic and all of that you know we're not we're not physical enough our education is not balanced enough between the mental the physical and the spiritual so this is a big challenge because you know, if the parents and students don't want it, how do we make it work? I'm actually going to kind of go through these quickly, and then we're going to come back and revisit them. Teachers and administrators are often not leading by example. When, when was it? Uh, I get confused with all the things I've heard here, but somebody was talking about this. I guess it was Scott Ritzma this morning had a quote about how teachers should be out there. Um, school farms are viewed as a money-making industry rather than a foundational part of true education. I see this as a big problem. Um, this is huge. The lack of educated farmers, number five. You know... I, I get calls all the time saying, do you know of somebody you can recommend to come help us? And I usually have to say, you know, I wish I did. Number six, institutional farmers do not have skin in the game. You know what that means? Um, if the crops don't, work, they still get a paycheck at the end of the month. Um, number seven, farmers are handicapped or sometimes handcuffed by changing administration, budget constraints, and other challenges out of the farmer's control. Number eight, lack of continuity in a garden farm plan. We've all seen this. One person comes in, oh man, I've read this book, we're going to go square foot gardening. You know, let's tear out all this other stuff, this is the way we're going to do it. And they last a year or two, and the next person comes, oh no, we're not doing that way, let's do it this way. Of course, they're never going to get ahead, because you're reinventing the wheel every few years. 
Number nine, the school calendar and traditional agricultural calendar do not mesh well. You know, traditionally you're planting, um, you know, this part of the country, April, May, and that's right when school's getting out. Then who's going to take care of it? The, the faculty have to have a break. I know how intense that can be. Um, Ten, vacations, mission trips, and other school activities interfere with the consistency needed in a garden or farm. You know, you can't tell the plants, you know, we're going to go away for a week. Just hang in there. We'll be back in a week. Um, doesn't work that way. Number 11, the school day is already filled with other classes and activities. How can you add anything more? You know, I look at the schedules, these schools, and, and I understand you've got to keep the kids busy. The devil finds work for idle hands to do. But how do you fit something new into an already full schedule? Twelve, the decision makers do not fully understand the difference between cheap food and real food. You know, this is... a, a Something that I, it's a little bit of one of my um, bandwagons. But, you know, we think a carrot is a carrot. But there's a big difference between a store-bought conventional carrot and a homegrown, mineralized, organic carrot. And I believe that it's not just the taste difference. I believe that... If we had more real food in our cafeterias, we would see differences in a lot of areas, student health, and so on. Thirteen, cafeteria cooks do not have time and or knowledge in how to prepare garden fresh food. It takes more work. You know, just opening up a salad already chopped from Cisco is, you know, a 10 second job. Um, preparing a salad from the garden is work. Okay, so we looked at some of this this morning. I'm so thankful the schedule got rearranged so I could attend that session. But there are government regulations that are challenging. And then the last one I have is lack of funding. So that's 15. Can you think of more? I'm sure there are more. Any more that are on the top of your head? So again, I just want to emphasize I am in no way looking down on you because I've been there. I know what it's like, and these are not easy challenges. These are real challenges, and so um, I understand why they're there. But I would like to go back and look at them and see if we can come up with some suggested solutions. Somebody tell me again when this session ends. 4.30? Yeah, this is a long one somehow. So 
when I start seeing too many people doze off, yeah, um, <laughs> I had a teacher in college who would just call you out by name and say, Rob, go get a drink. And that did a good job of waking you up, not only getting up and getting a drink, but the humiliation of being called out. So it works. Okay, so I've kind of lumped these into different groups. And the first group, I would say, is, you know, dealing with philosophy, ideology, paradigms, challenges, and solutions. Back to that first one. Again, I I hope it's not the first thing that we don't believe the inspired counsel. Now, you know, I have heard people say, well, that was, you know, that was for the 1800s, early 1900s. Now we're in the day and age of computers and, you know, you got to translate it. So, you know, technology is the ABC of our education. I I don't go for that. Um, So I I trust you believe in the inspired council. Um, Again, I understand that it's easy when you're in the midst of the school calendar to start kind of running on automatic and just trying to make it through one day at a time. Um, And sometimes we can start making decisions based on circumstances. But I I think I, I know enough about some of the schools involved here that I know you take time to sit down and say, okay, let's look at the big picture. Where are we going here? I know, I know you are really doing your best to not be governed by circumstances. So again, I, I suspect that it's more just how do we do this? It's great to say it's the foundation, but how do we do this? We've tried in the past. It didn't work. What are we going to do? And so then the parents and students, you know, I'm, I'm lumping that in here. It's, it's a matter of changing our mindset. If this is truly foundational, we just need to figure out how to make it work. So I'm suggesting, and again, I, I realize that this can be kind of almost sounds trite, but we need to study the councils as schools and families and move forward based on faith, not circumstances. Um, Have any of you seen this? Councils on Agriculture. This is something that I compiled a few years ago, but since it's all Ellen White quotes, I can promote it unashamedly. I tried to be as exhaustive as I could going through Mrs. White's writings on agriculture and pulling them all out because I felt like if people could read them in their totality, they would either have to be faced with, you know, we've got to figure out how to make this work or, you know, they can reject it. That's their choice. But she has so much to say about agriculture. You know, and, and this is this is not even, you know, this is quotes that have specific agricultural language. This is not broad 
quotes like manual labor, which of course many times was referring to agriculture, but this is only quotes with agricultural language. And so it's, it's a topical compilation. God's plan for man, promises for the agriculturalist, a call for Christian farmers, agriculture at home, agriculture in our schools, agriculture in our healthcare institutions, agriculture for ministers and other gospel workers, physical benefits of agriculture, spiritual lessons from agriculture, agriculture in the last days. And then the last chapter is really a fun one. Ellen White led by example. Just uh, lots of diary entries of her garden. She was a passionate gardener. You know, she talks about coming home at way after dark with some, some plants that she wanted to plant. And her companions were telling her, no, we need to go to bed. And she says, no, I'm going to plant these tonight. So she's out there by candlelight um, planting her plants. And then it rained that night. And she said, I'm so glad I did. So it's, it's really inspiring. She had a commercial farm. You know that at Elmshaven. She had a, a large farm. She had a farmer also at Sunnyside in, uh, in Australia. So anyway, I, again, you know, there are two more compilations. To me, this is an indication that God wants agriculture to come back into prominence in Adventism. Because for, you know, how many years has it been since she died? 103 years. For 103 years, there was nothing on agriculture as far as, you know, trying to pull stuff together. And then within six months, three different compilations came out, um, all independently impressed to do it. That tells me something. Um, there's one David Obermiller out in California has one called the Green Print. The, the unique thing about that is it's a chronological compilation. Um, and then there's one called Hope in the Soil, which is um, a lady up in Michigan put that together. I would say the unique thing about this is I tried to take everything back to its original sources um, there's no quoting from compilations here. It's all going back to the original manuscripts and documents. Um, so anyway, we just need to, we need to understand what God has said through his prophet. And I believe as we study this as schools, um, you know, in worships or whatever, and try to help the, the parents and the, the young people see the big picture. This is not just about learning how to plant a seed and watching a plant grow. This is so much more than that. Um, and we'll talk more about that as we go along. Okay, teachers and administrators are often not leading by example. You know, I understand 
you're busy. How can you add anything more? But this is where I say, hey, you know, there's principles involved here. We've got to figure out how to make it work. If the kids see you out there, (coughs) excuse me, in the garden, that's going to be inspiring to them. And the other thing is, and, and again, I think Scott talked about this this morning in the talk I heard of his, but um, where do you have the Im- biggest impact with your students? Okay, it's usually not in the classroom. Sometimes it can be. But when I look back at my academy experience at Little Creek, the times that really stick out to me where I felt really bonded with the faculty was when we were working together. And, you know, you feel like you can just open up more. You know, they kind of come down to your level and you're working together to solve things. It's incredibly powerful platform for ministry, for witnessing. And that's not going to happen if you're in your office and you're saying, you know, go out to the garden and work, guys. There's lots of quotes, but here's one, manuscript 8b. Let the teachers in our schools take their students with them into the gardens and fields and teach them how to work the soil in the very best manner. Both teachers and students would have much more healthful experience in spiritual things. Now, you know, well, let's finish the quote. We can come back. And much stronger minds and purer hearts to interpret eternal mysteries than they can have while studying books so constantly and working the brain without taxing the muscles. Do you believe it? Let's act on it. Um, You know, it would be one thing if she said they'll have much stronger bodies. You know, you can understand that. uh, You're working physically, but she says much more healthful experience in spiritual things. And much stronger minds and pure hearts to interpret eternal mysteries. Yeah, this one thing I just want to try to emphasize through this presentation is that it's so much more than just learning how to grow plants. And I don't even comprehend it fully. After 20 years of doing it, I just look back and say, wow, it's amazing. But to try to explain it, you know, to see our children grow up in the garden and our children are far from perfect. Um, so I'm not setting them up as the model, but what we have seen in their lives um, that has come out of the garden is very encouraging to us. Okay, school farms are viewed as a money-making industry rather than an integral part of true education. This is another one of my little pet platforms you know how many of you have english departments that are making money 
None. Okay, what about history? Science. Any departments that are making money. So somehow agriculture gets held to a higher standard. Agriculture has to make the school money, even though it's foundational to education, but yet nothing else does. Is that fair? Now, is there potential? I'll tell you some, when you know what right now is being made in this country on small farms, I think it'll blow you away. And we'll talk more about that in the next session. $350,000 on an acre and a half with hand tools, no tractor, no BCS. Um, that's what's being done in this country. Now, I'm not suggesting you're going to go out and do that. Um, but all I'm trying to say is, yes, there's potential for making it money-making, but it's not going to start out that way. Here's a quote. By the way, what, what do you think is the biggest chapter in here? I read through them. I'm, I don't expect you to remember them all. But actually, the biggest one is spiritual lessons from agriculture. You know, that's, that's huge. And I didn't even try to get all the quotes there. But the next biggest chapter is agriculture in our schools. She has more to say about agriculture in our schools than any other context. It's really important. I urge that our other schools be given encouragement in their efforts to develop plans for the training of the youth in agricultural and other lines of industrial work. When in ordinary business pioneer work is done and preparation is made for future development, there's frequently a financial loss. And as our schools introduce manual training, they too may at first incur loss. But let us remember the blessings that physical exercise brings to the student. We must not be narrow in our plans. In industrial training, there are unseen advantages which cannot be measured or estimated. Let no one begrudge the effort necessary to carry forward successfully the plan that for years has been urged upon us as of primary importance. I emphasize that sentence because that's my experience. Um, and I think we're not seeing that. That's, this is something we have to accept by faith. In industrial training, there are unseen advantages which cannot be measured or estimated. Only looking back can you see what it has done to young people. And, you know, you, who was talking about, well, I guess it was Deborah Osborne with her talk about the, the alumnus from, from Laurel Brook talking about the training in cleaning toilets. Um, you know, that had an impact on his life and has probably 
affected much of his choices in life. But it was a simple instruction in cleaning toilets. How many of you were there for that? Many of you. Basically, the message was that the teacher or the work supervisor put a chocolate chip toilet, um, <laughs> chocolate chip cookie on the toilet seat and said, if this was clean like it should have been, you'd have no problem eating this. Um, so, you know, if we come into agriculture from purely a well, maybe this is the way to get our school out of debt, or maybe this is the way to finance our school. I think we're missing the boat. Yeah, maybe down the road that can, can be a reality, but we don't start there. We do it because God said we should do it. And we go forward by faith. Okay, so the second group of challenges, I just, I don't know if this is a good term, but farmer-centric challenges and solutions. The lack of educated farmers. Um, you know, we've lost a generation. Um, our church was started by farmers, largely. Um, and now there are very few people that know anything, you know, less than, well, it's about 1% of the American population is involved in farming. So basically we're illiterate when it comes to agriculture. And so how can we have successful farms? You know, we're having to start from scratch and I wish I could, you know, tell you a school where you can go and be educated to be a farmer. Um, I don't, know of any Adventist schools. Um, we are doing a very small part. At our farm, we have a six-month apprenticeship program every year where people can come and stay for six months, and we try to give them exposure to every part of the agricultural process. So that's our little part. And then we're also involved, I'll talk more about Ad Agra later on, the Adventist Agricultural Association. We have a conference every year with all kinds of um, seminars, practical seminars. So we're trying, but it doesn't happen overnight. Um, it's a huge challenge. It was a challenge even back in Mrs. White's day, which is interesting because at that time, I'm trying to remember the statistics now. Um, well, I know in 1930, I think I'm remembering correctly that 30% of the country was involved directly in agriculture. In 1820, 70% of the country was directly involved in agriculture. So Mrs. White lived kind of between that and 1930. It was down to like 30%. Now, as I said, it's 1%. Um, but even in her day, she says, there's a great want of intelligent men to till the soil who will be thorough 
This knowledge will not be a hindrance to the education essential for business or for usefulness in any line. She's saying this is just good basic work ethic. This is something that can apply no matter what you do. To develop the capacity of the soil requires thought and intelligence. I'll tell you, if you have the stereotype of the dumb farmer, you've never farmed because it's the most challenging thing I've ever done in my life. Um, you have to have a grasp of so many disciplines. It's incredible. Not only will it develop muscle, but capability for study because the taxation of brain and muscle is equalized. We should so train the youth that they will love to work upon the land and delight in improving it. Oh, I, that's, you know, I love that picture. Kids who are saying, when can we get back out to the garden? It's my favorite part of the day. So these are both from Manuscript 8B, which, in my opinion, is Mrs. White's seminal work on agriculture, written in Australia, the beginnings of Avondale. Men are wanted to educate others how to plow and how to use the implements of agriculture. Who will be missionaries to do this work, to teach proper methods to the youth, and to all who feel willing and humble enough to learn. So she's calling for farmers back then. Can you imagine if she was living today? Are you... Okay, yeah, th that's a good point. So, well, it's published now. Yeah, it's so a lot of a lot of the quotes in this book are are were from previously unpublished documents. So, are you all familiar with egwhitewritings.org, where you can go and search? And there's a, a neat little thing. I wonder if I could just pull it up. That sounds way too techy for me. But let me try. My computer's old and slow. Anyway, there's a really neat thing that I think a lot of people aren't aware of there where you can search by... Um, Too small to see here. I hope I don't mess up anything here. Oh, I don't know. I'm going to get myself in trouble here. Let me just... I'll just tell you about it. Anyway, under the search bar up in the corner, you can choose... Um, I think it's called Lifetime Works. Are you familiar with that? where you can go in and click on Lifetime Works, and then it will eliminate all the compilations. As any of you have ever searched Mrs. White's writings, you know that it can be daunting because there's hundreds of repeated quotes. 
So if you now, I will say, even in the lifetime works, you will find some repeats, but it's much, much less, and it'll also give you the original sources. Well, I th- I think it's E.G. White E.G.W. Writings. Um, yeah, it, that's a huge help in looking these things up, and you can just type in the the reference. And okay, we looked at both of those, didn't we? Okay, let's talk about this. Institutional farmers do not have skin in the game. They get a paycheck whether the farm is succeeding or not. This, to me, I see as a, as a huge, as a big challenge because um, there's nothing quite so motivating than knowing that if you don't do your job right... <laughs> You're not going to have anything to eat this month or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So I feel, in fact, I kind of got this from Curtis Stone, who we'll talk more about later. He's kind of the one of the most um, most well-known up-and-coming farmers. He he just had a uh, he he does a lot of videos on YouTube, but he had a he had five reasons why nonprofit farms fail. And this was one of his main points. Institutional farmers do not have skin in the game. And, and yeah, when you know your livelihood is dependent on you getting those crops covered, you make sure they get covered. Um, whereas if, if you're being paid by the institution, it's like, well, you know, I'm busy and, you know, if they freeze, it's not a huge thing. Um, so, you know, that, that presents a unique challenge. And I have some suggestions that we'll look at here in a minute. Farmers are often handicapped by changing administration, budget constraints, and other challenges out of their control. I could tell you horror stories of institutions where a farmer had poured their life into it and a new administration came along and somebody hoodwinked them into thinking that they should go the way of hydroponics. And I have, I'll make no secret that I don't believe hydroponics are biblical and I would discourage you from going that way. Um, they destroyed the infrastructure of the farm that had been built up by the blood and sweat of these farmers, the two farmers over the last five years, and sold off the machinery. And then after all that, decided after a while that hydroponics maybe wasn't the way to go. You know, you can imagine if you're that farmer and you've invested so much to see that just go down the drain you think, and, and that institution came up to me not long ago and said, where do we find another farmer? I said, I think you're going to have a hard time finding one. Um, 
So, you know, you've got this tension between administration who, now, of course, it's nice when you have schools like Wachita where the administration um, is so consistent um, and Harbert Hills. Actually, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the schools in this area, self-supporting schools have had some pretty consistent administration. But, you know, what way is the school going? It kind of depends largely on who's in charge, right? So when the next person comes along, what happens to the farmer in the program? This is big. Um, budget constraint, you know, you can't farm by committee. Sometimes you need something now. And, you know, if you're waiting for it to be approved by a committee, um, it may be too late. So I, I realized that, yeah, I, I'm just going to throw some suggestions out there. And so this next one we talked a little bit about, the lack of continuity. You know, the next farmer comes along. And again, I think this is largely because farmers, and, and again, this is no reflection on the institution, but because it's so hard to find educated farmers, the farmer is often the spouse of a teacher that they really needed and hired. And so the spouse becomes the farmer. And... Um, he really doesn't know, he or she really doesn't know what they're doing, but they did read a book at one time, and so that's what they think they should do. And so you end up with all kinds of ideas. Um, th that's a problem. I've seen that over and over. So this is, this is radical, but I... And, and again, it needs to be fleshed out and worked through a little bit more. But I feel like the solution potentially is to have farmers, and, and there are examples of this trying to work, farmers have some kind of lease agreement or arrangement with the school, and it could possibly you know, be kind of payable in produce. The farmer agrees to provide the cafeteria with this much food on a regular basis. But to have a little bit of autonomy where they can make what they feel is the best decision. Of course, you know, the plan needs to be approved by the school. You can't have farmers go in whatever direction they want. But the benefit to the school, I think, would be that they wouldn't have to fund the farm program. The farmer is dependent on his labor. Could that work? I would challenge you to think about it. You know, that's a big incentive for the farmer to really put his heart and soul into it. Um, okay. Yeah. The, so. Yeah. So for audio verse, the 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 concern somebody's voicing is that 
that could potentially conflict with the goal of the school to to have students involved in the work program and i think that 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 would you know obviously there are a lot of details that would have to be worked through but you would only hire or or only contract with a farmer who had that mission mindset and knew that the goal was to involve the students um yeah, and, and, you know, the, the thing is, there's a lot of young farmers, and we'll talk more about this. There's been kind of a new generation of farmers that have inspired, been inspired by these young farmers I'll tell you about um, next time. Unfortunately, this at this point is largely out of Adventism, but it's beginning to creep into Adventism. So you have all these young farmers who are charged up about this. It's like, let's do it. But it's daunting to start a farm from scratch. You know, purchase land, build infrastructure. You know, with what? You know, they're young. They don't have $100,000 saved up. So you've got schools with the land, with many of them with infrastructure, with, you know, you're telling me you've got hoop houses or greenhouses, tattered plastic, growing weeds. It's all there. So in my mind, it's a win-win. You, you pair somebody who has the desire to farm with the infrastructure and say, go for it. And teach our kids, you know, let's let's work at this together. So, again, I, I realize there's a lot of fleshing out that this idea would have to have. But I just, I feel like maybe it's the only way. I shouldn't say the only way, but maybe it's a good way to make it work. You know, and, and this um, this farmer cannot be responsible for going on class trips and stuff. This farmer is, the farm is his job, his or her job. Um, so if we have time, we can talk more about some of these. Then I would like to suggest that we come up with some kind of standardization of a basic set of proven methods for continuity between farmers. You know, there are methods that I will talk to you about next time, next session, that, you know, every farmer has their own little tweaks, but it's the same method from farm to farm to farm. 30-inch beds, working them with broad forks, um, you know, the spacings, plant spacings, and all of these things are, that's what is being used. And it's, there are thousands, thousands of small farms across this country making it work. And part of the reason why I know this is because my son, my oldest son, has a business called Farmer's Friend who is selling tools to these farmers, specialized tools for small farms. 
and his business is booming, booming. He has, you know, thousands and thousands of customers on his data data bank that have bought these tools and they're doing it successfully. So, you know, I just want you to, to eradicate this idea from your mind that it can't be done. You can't make money doing this or you can't. It's just not working in this day and age because I will argue vehemently with you on that. But I, I would like to, to try to encourage people to move towards some sort of standardization. You don't want to put people in a box but it's like let's you know this these methods are working let's start with something that has proven and then if you want to experiment that's great but you know start with what's working okay so let's move on to calendar schedule calendar slash schedule challenges and solutions Oh, I love this one. The school calendar and traditional agricultural calendar do not mesh well. As as we said, you know, the the normal agricultural calendar in this part of the country, April, May is when you're planting out and then you're harvesting all the way through the summer. And you might have a little harvesting to still do when the kids come back, but who's running it all summer? And... Um, and, you know, if it's a skeleton crew, how is that benefiting the larger student body? Well, this is a really simple solution. And I'll just show you this book. Elliot Coleman, we'll talk a little more about him later on. Elliot Coleman is the um, acknowledged, um, what can I call him? grandfather of the small farm movement that's going on today the young guys i'll also tell you about are they say you know we're standing on elliot's shoulders this guy is in his 70s now he's in maine and this book the winter harvest handbook tells you how he is growing all the way through the winter in maine in unheated hoop houses no no high energy bills and his point is if i can do it in maine you can do it where you're at and there are now farms all over the country doing it i um we we have family friends that used to come down to our farm almost every year from michigan and, you know, this friend would say, oh, you know, because we've done winter farming for since 2003. We grow all winter. Um, and he'd say, this is great, you know, but we couldn't do this in Michigan. There's just not enough sunshine and it's too cold. So one of these times I knew one of the one of the top names in winter growing is at the um, MSU, Michigan State University. So one time we went up there in January and I said, hey, 
come with me. Let's go visit MSU. So it was an incredible experience because we went there. It was cold. I think it was like 10 degrees and snow on the ground and these hoop houses that look just barren and lifeless. We go in there and in the hoop house, there's a a low cover, floating row cover. And we pulled up the floating row cover and it was like spring lush green everywhere and it blew them away wow it can be done in michigan it can be done anywhere um we just went through the coldest january that i have ever experienced on the farm and with simple low-tech solutions our lettuce our carrots um, i mean we we lost a few things but our lettuce and carrots were still harvesting and giving to people after a week where it never got above freezing, got down to zero degrees. It's with no heat. Simple solutions. So this, this is a perfect fit. I mean, literally, um, the, the fall, winter, spring garden fits perfectly with the calendar year. You start seeding. As soon as the the kids get back to school, um, in fact, you know, if if there's a farmer there over the summer, it's nice to start seeding a little earlier, and then they can start transplanting as soon as kids get back. Uh, Go all winter. In the spring, you're planting, you know, depending on when your graduation is, you can have tomatoes ready before graduation out of a hoop house, unheated hoop house. If your graduation is the end of May, um, you can grow spring transplants. You know, everybody wants tomato plants and pepper plants and stuff come spring. So you, you know, that's, you have the kids grow those in the spring and sell them. And who wouldn't want to buy from a school knowing you're helping to support the school? Um, I think there's tremendous potential here. And to me, this is the most exciting thing here. Just the paradigm shift. Forget the summer garden. Well, I mean, if you have guard, if you have a farmer and you have crew, great, go for it. You know, grow your tomatoes and everything. But otherwise, just grow a winter garden. It's a perfect fit. All you need is a few hoop houses. You don't even have to have those, but that's ideal. So what would you use for like the corn and eggplant those uh, those vegetables? What would you do for corn, eggplant, and okra? Well, are are you able to preserve them somehow? Obviously, those you'd have to still grow in the summer. Um yeah, we're not trying to turn winter into summer. We're just growing crops. And again, we'll, we'll get into the details of that next session. Um, but yeah, if now I know, you know, I know there's a whole canning issue with schools. So I think there's no canning anymore, right? Or, we're allowed to can. We've met all of the... Um, oh, so you have a... Okay, so we have great. Can, but um, even if we 
Yeah. Okay. Is it possible to get a late harvest on some of those? Can you have a late crop or corn when it would be in the season? Okay, so the question is, you know, can you have late crop of corn? Yes and no. My experience is the early corn has the fewest worms. And as, as you go, I mean, theoretically, you can have late corn, but unless you're spraying it highly, um, I think you'd have a hard time getting it before the worms did. Um, that's my experience. Okra, you know, okra will keep going till frost. Of course, it slows down quite a bit in, as the days cool off. So, yeah, if you have a way to can and freeze and you're in the habit of doing that, you know, I'm not suggesting you need to do away with the summer garden. If you have that figured out, keep it up. You know, in fact, I think the ideal is that you have a spring and summer gardener and a fall and winter gardener. And they work together. Um, but, you know, to go year round without a break for farmer is more than I want to do. It's, you know, it's intense enough that you need a break to catch your breath. Um, but there are certainly ways that that could be done. So you've got vacations, mission trips, and other school activities. These are, you know, these are a lot of good things, but you can't just leave the garden or farm. So... As I've already said, somebody you have somebody who doesn't need to go on those trips. Um, but let me tell you, this is another incredible thing about the winter garden. You can leave for a week. Now, the, the one thing you have to do is manage your row covers depending on the, the temperature. So you got to have somebody there to put row covers on and off. But other than that... They're just going to sit there and they'll be ready for you next week. Um, weeds, everything slows down. So, yeah, there are still some weeds. You have your, your chickweed and your hen's bit and those kind of weeds, but everything's poking along. So there's not the intensity and urgency of a summer garden. We grew commercially for seven years grew a winter garden before we started growing summer commercially. The first spring we were doing a summer garden, I thought I was going to die because I was working all day and then it wasn't getting done. So I, you know, donned the headlamp and I'm out there at 11 o'clock at night trying to plant tomatoes. Spring is so intense and summer stays intense um so the the fall and winter the fall can be fairly intense because that's when you're doing the majority of your planting and stuff but it's nothing like spring the days are shortening everything's slowing down rather than getting faster so it's so fun to plant in the fall um I'm, I'm really excited about that. Okay, school day is already filled with other classes and activities. How can you add anything more? Well, here's a quote. 
Manuscript 105, 1898, there should be less study of books and greater painstaking effort made to obtain that knowledge which is essential for practical life. The youth are to learn how to work interestedly and intelligently that wherever they are, they may be respected because they have a knowledge of those arts which are so essential for practical life. In the place of being day laborers under an overseer, they are to strive to be masters of their trades, to place themselves where they can command wages as good carpenters, printers, or as educators in agricultural work. So, you know, we need to have the viewpoint that manual labor is honorable and we want them to be masters of it. You know, if you guys learn how to do this and do it well, you can go out and I think you all are aware that, you know, many um, trades, you know, plumbers, electricians and so on um, make very, very good money if they're good at what they do. Um, unfortunately, farmers kind of lag behind in that. The most important profession of all um, gets paid the least usually. That's one of the ironies of our society. But it's changing. As I said, there are some of these young guys are, are really um, making it work. So I would like to suggest, and, and I realize that this is, is not an easy answer at all, but with creativity, most subjects can at least be partially taught in the garden. Now, I'm not suggesting that, you know, you do away with traditional schoolwork and just spend the day in the garden. But I am suggesting that there's a lot of things that can be taught in the garden. You know, if you're laying out beds, you're using Pythagorean theorem all day in practical ways to get your, your right angles and to get your beds laid out correctly. Um, if you're going to farmer's market, you know, I heard somebody say once they said they felt like farmer's markets was the best example of... of um, Oh, what was the term they used? Anyway, best example of capitalism in action. You know, it's, it's all there, the economics, you know, the law of supply and demand. If you've got lots of carrots and they're not selling, you've got more supply than demand, so you need to bring the price down to build demand. You know, there's so many things. And, of course, that's not even getting into all the social skills, you know, relating to the customers and, um, you know, trying to, to get, you know, one amazing thing about growing food is that God created us to be bonded to those that feed us. Do you know that? I mean, that's, you think about the mother-child relationship, the child bonds to those that feed them. And God created us that way. Unfortunately, 
our society has so been so warped that we get bonded to the food instead of the feeder. But what I will tell you is that when you feed people, they bond with you in amazing ways. And we have incredible opportunities to witness, to pray with our customers, to have them over for meals, to, you know, it's, it's tremendous. So I'm getting a little off topic there, but the point is, you know, biology, it just hurts me to think. Now, I did have a good biology teacher in academy, and we did go on field trips up to the Smoky Mountains and stuff. But I mean, just, you know, I was just thinking about um, genetics, you know, to, to, to actually make hybrids, hand pollinate squash and create new varieties of squash. Can you imagine the incredible biology you could have in the garden? And, you know, you study these pictures in the biology book of a flower with the pistil and the stamen, and it's like, why not take them to the garden and pull the flower off and take it apart? This is this part, and this is this part. Um, You know, we've so divorced much of learning from real life. I mean, this is how I was, you know, I was a good student. I always got good grades, except in Algebra 2, and that's a different story. But um, it was was a waste of time. You know, I I could never, why am I learning this? I, I couldn't understand the practical application. I can remember another classic example in Pathfinders, and I'm in no way knocking Pathfinders, but, you know, we were working on the knot honor. So we had to do all these knots and glue them on a board. And I had no idea why I was learning these knots except to get a badge, you know. But I mean, in the garden, it's really helpful to know how to use some of those knots. So, you know, you say when you're when you're making your pole TP for your green beans to run up, this is the best knot to use. And, you know, it can go on chemistry, soil, chemistry. You know, I learned chemistry in, in high school. It had no practical application for me. Now I wish I could go back and take it again. Because I'm trying to learn about anions and cations and cationic exchange capacity and, you know, how all these different chemicals interact. And I'm lost half the time because I didn't learn my chemistry well enough. So to take our subjects, and again, I realize, you know, to ask a teacher to do that is daunting. So I'm, I realize this, these are not easy solutions, but so much could be taught in the garden with some thought. Um, I can't think of a subject that couldn't be taught partially from the garden. Um, so to me, that's a way we can try to fit it in. It's going to take work, but again, I think it's imperative.
Decision makers do not fully understand the difference between cheap food and real food, and cafeteria cooks do not have time and or knowledge on how to prepare garden fresh food. You know, to me, this is largely about education, um, helping people to see that, you know, I'm sure you've all have heard how the USDA keeps statistics on the nutritional value of produce. Have you heard this and how it's been declining for the last 50 years? A squash 50 years ago had much more nutrition in it than a squash today has. And I think it's simply because our soil is getting more and more depleted. So if we're focused on remineralizing our soils, if we're focused on the best methods of organic agriculture, we are going to have squash or carrots or whatever else that are more nutritious. And that should translate, and you might have a hard time proving it from a scientific point of view, but that should translate into healthier more intelligent, happier students. And I put this name, I, I can't remember her first name. Um, Cheryl, maybe, I don't know. But there is a food service director at Portland Adventist Academy. Her last name is Torgerson. She was at our last Ad Agra conference. Okay, 4.30 is when we quit. Okay, yeah, we're good. Um, she was trained in, in um, some very prestigious, as I understand it, culinary institutions. Um, and, you know, of course, this farm-to-table idea, this local food, that's big in the culinary circles you know the the, the high-end restaurants are looking for fresh local organic produce so that was how she was trained and so she has gone to portland adventist academy and she is transforming the menu at portland adventist academy and making it seasonal making it fresh and local and her goal is to come up with a program that, sh that can be implemented in other Adventist schools. You know, there, there are public schools that are doing this, but she feels it's time for Adventist schools to take the lead on this. You know, it's a sad reality that in the area of agriculture, we should be the head, but we are not we are struggling to catch up with the world in the area of agriculture. Okay, so then you've got OSHA, Department of Labor, other government regulations. Actually, I went away from the thing, the, the seminar this morning, encouraged. Um, and of course, I'm not involved in the school, so maybe that helps, but... Um, the beauty of the winter garden that I'm talking about, there's no power equipment needed. 
simple hand tools. Did you all use any power equipment in the garden? That was for the initial plowing up of the field or what? what? Okay. So one time they used a tiller and hopefully if the soil's taken care of that should never happen again. It's perfect for for um, student labor. You know, I mean, these tools, you'd have to work pretty hard to hurt yourself with. I, now, there are some tools like the greens harvester my son manufactures. You could hurt yourself with that if you were being stupid. But, um, okay, what else? Lack of funding. You know, honestly, I, I don't see that as a huge challenge. I figure we, at Heritage this year, I think we've spent, well, I know it's between five and $6,000 to get, to buy all the tools that I felt were absolutely ne necessary, um, to buy deer fencing to put around the outside thing, to buy all the row cover to by potting mix and seeds. Most of that, of course, is going to be there for next year. So, you know, potting mix and seed, depending on how big you're going with this, um, you know, you're going to spend $1,000, $1,500 on potting mix and seed per year. Um, but, you know, back to this, this idea of working some sort of arrangement out with the farmer where they're semi-autonomous, um, you know, other than the initial infrastructure of building your hoop houses and stuff, the farmer garden should be able to fund itself. In fact, well, I shouldn't say too much because I'll steal Alyssa's thunder, but... I mean, the, the farm has actually made a little money this year, which wasn't even part of the goal for the first year. So that's exciting. Okay, well, so to end this session, I would ask the question, is it an option to have schools that don't teach the ABCs? Is it an option? Well, I guess... It is an option, but should it be an option? We have to figure out how to make it work. At least as I read the Spirit of Prophecy Council, um, this is a an essential, she uses that word, an essential part of education. Um, Essential is pretty important last I knew. So it's not, should we have an agriculture program? In my mind, the question is, how do we make it work? So I've given some suggestions to get your, your um, thinking caps or your, 
you know, in, in kindergarten, we used to put on our thinking caps and, and think. Um, anyway, hopefully you've got your thinking caps on and you're, you're challenged. That's my goal, to challenge you to do something. And like I say, in the next session, we'll, we'll try to get a little more practical. Obviously, we can't, I mean, we can only cover so much in an hour, but um, that's the goal. So we've got time for some questions or thoughts or other challenges that you're facing. Yes. Where are you? But Daystar, okay, which has a fairly strong, or has had a fairly strong agriculture program. So just for audio verse, I'll try to summarize the question. So this lady is, is saying that she's talked to people who have suggested that you can't have private industry on nonprofit um, land and involved and I yeah I, I think you know you would have to you would have to have some help setting it up in a way that was legal and acceptable and maybe you know that's why I say semi-autonomous you know I'm not suggesting that this farmer is a maverick doing their own thing I'm suggesting they just have their own budget and run with their budget just for 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 the sake that you know when you need to buy things sometimes you need to buy them and and um yeah so i i don't think i'm suggesting something i i would not see it as a private enterprise it would be working with the school but maybe just in a non-traditional way and again I'm throwing out ideas you know I spend a lot of time thinking about these things I've I'm an observer of what's going on and the challenges that schools have and saying there's got to be a solution because if God told us we should do it then we got to figure out how to make it work okay so this man is saying that there are examples of schools leasing out like healthcare, nursing home kind of situations and working. So obviously this, this kind of thing would take a lot of thought and probably some legal counsel. I mean, not probably, I'm sure some legal counsel to make sure you were doing it right. But there, there are examples, you know, and I know other, other situations where nonprofits have businesses, um, and I don't understand how it all works. I'm not a lawyer, but I think I think those are things that can be tackled. Okay, was there a question over here? I was just going to say, Georgia Cumberland Academy rents out quite a few acres to farmers and they make a lot of money, the farmers do, 
Yeah. The school benefits from just renting out the land. Yeah, and that's that's a, I would call it an unfortunate reality, but I know it's true of many schools that they're renting out farmland. They have the farmland because they knew they were supposed to do agriculture and it hasn't worked and so they're renting it out to conventional farmers and at least getting enough to pay the taxes and the farmers are making all the money although there's not a lot of money to be made in conventional agriculture depends on the year yes sir okay so the the comment is that you don't have to just look at the legal but you need to look at the tax ramifications and it's how the money it's not a problem to make money it depends on how it's allocated so again you know with with that i i'm not i share these things more to stimulate your thinking and to help you to see that i believe there are non-traditional unconventional approaches that we need to look at i'm not um, trying to throw something at you that i'm expecting you to take home and do without a lot of consideration um, but again you know i keep coming back to the point we've got to figure out how to make it work because you know i i i know i'm biased i'm a farmer I can be overly simplistic, but I'm listening to a lot of the sessions upstairs of the challenges, and I'm thinking in my mind an agriculture problem would solve a lot of those challenges. That's my belief. Yeah, a strong agriculture program. Yes. Okay, so the question is about hydroponics, the, the reality that many people are from urban um, environments, and you know, is this not something that we should be showing them how to do? Uh, you know, obviously, I, I don't want to be oversimplistic, but... Um, there's a lot of money being made in hydroponics, let me say that. In fact, I don't know if any of you know about the big brouhaha with the USDA or with the, the National Organics Program in hydroponics. Um, you know, probably for most people, it's not on their radar, but it is now legal for hydroponics to be labeled as organic. And if you buy organic berries in the store, prob probably 98% chance they're grown hydroponically. They don't even have to say, well, I'm thinking more of actually raspberries and blackberries. They're being grown in Mexico. Driscoll's has hundreds of acres of greenhouses in Mexico growing hydroponic berries so in the water put antifungal I, I don't know what all they do but but the reality is yeah so there there is money to be made on the other hand I've seen a lot of people sink a lot of money into hydroponics and never make it work um, 
So I'm not talking about from a business point of view. I'm talking about from a philosophical point of view. You know, God created us out of soil. And, you know, you think about all the the parables and illustrations of Christ and all the references to soil in the Bible. And if you just take that out of the picture, I feel like it messes with your theology. So I... Yeah, you know, I, I, I can respect somebody that thinks differently, but I have fairly strong views on it. And I believe there are lessons to learn from the soil that, I mean, it's such an artificial environment. Um, it's very high tech. It's very money intensive. Um, and unless you know what you're doing, you're going to lose a lot of money. So uh, back to your urban farming, I'll share with you about Curtis Stone, who's written a book called The Urban Farmer. He farms people's yards in Kelowna, British Columbia. He's making $100,000 on a quarter of an acre of people's yards. So there is land available in the city. I don't think we have to go to hydroponics to do urban gardening. Why 30-inch beds? Um, Short, simple answer is um, Elliot Coleman came up with that standard and most people are adopting it. So what that means is now there's a lot of tools that are designed for a 30-inch bed. It's just become an industry standard. There are some people who go larger, but like I say, because now the tools are being designed for a 30-inch bed, and all these books I'm going to share with you, all of them do 30-inch beds. So when they give all their recommendations, it's going to be based on a 30-inch bed. Some other simple reasons, a 30-inch bed can easily be stepped across. Um, So for getting around the garden, it's much easier. You know, if you've got four-foot beds, you can't, I mean, you'd have to really jump. And and so, and and then the other thing is, it's an easy, you know, this is about 30 inches right here. So the fastest, most efficient way to plant or harvest is just bending over like this, which you can do easily on a 30-inch bed. So it's, it's a size that fits the majority of people. And you can actually reach all the way over it. So you can plant the whole bed from one side if you want. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I've heard farmers being asked that. And they said, you know, maybe if we were coming up with the standard we would have gone a little wider a 36 inch or whatever but you know again it's why reinvent the wheel you know this is the standard that Elliot Elliot's a very short man actually Um, he kind of said this is what works for me and because everybody was reading his books they said let's do it and there's really no arguments against it um, that I know of. We have fewer paths and fuller beds if we had a wider bed. Yes, 
although some of them really have narrow aisles, you know, like, yeah, you're, you're not talking about a tractor or anything, you know, aisles as narrow as nine inches. Actually, I think at Heritage, we ended up, they're a little narrower than ideal. They're less than a foot. I don't know what they are exactly, but. These are not raised beds, like uh, formed beds. No, we'll, we'll talk more about that next time. Let's have a break. I think we all need a break. We start again at 445, right? Okay. Thank you all for sticking with I was planning to have a break in the middle there. That was a long session, but got carried away, I guess. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.